You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's episode, I'm joined by Steve Adcock. Steve retired at age 35 and currently lives off the grid in the desert. Prior to retiring early and achieving financial independence, he worked 14 years in the information technology field. He's very knowledgeable when it comes to financial independence and early retirement. During the episode, I chat with Steve about how he retired at 35 after living a somewhat luxurious lifestyle in his 20s, the pros and cons of early retirement, the creative ways Steve and his wife limit their expenses by living off the grid, what Steve's thoughts are on the follow your passion versus earn more money debate, and much, much more. Without further delay, let's dive right in to today's episode with Steve Adcock. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Steve Adcock. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and I've been looking forward to this. Now, we've been connected on Twitter for quite some time now. So I'm super familiar with your story and your background. And when I was considering guests for the show, I knew you would be a great fit because your story is one that people need to hear. I appreciate that. And I think I have a very atypical story, but I try to tell it in a way that anybody can wrap their head around and really get a lot of value out of it. So I hope that happens here as well. For those in our audience not familiar, please share your story and how you got to where you are today. Well, I am 40 years old and I retired at 35 after a 14-year career in information technology. So I followed a very traditional path of graduating from high school, immediately going into college, choosing my degree as a 20-year-old or so, 19, I guess. Graduated from college, started right into the workforce. I worked in defense contracting, um, which means you get paid pretty good money, but I also wasn't satisfied with my job in any way, shape, or form. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, I guess. But um, I, I did the traditional things that everybody does. You build a career, you make as much money as you want, you spend money on things that you think that maybe you deserve because you work so hard at your nine to five job. But I came to this fork in the road in 2000, I don't know, I guess it was 12 or so. I was making good money. I had the house in the suburbs. I had the Yamaha R1 sport bike. I had the 1999 Corvette convertible. I had the brand new Cadillac CTS. I'm sure you you could wrap your hand around the golden handcuffs scenario that I was in. And this one Saturday, I was in my garage and I reached up to open up the garage door, but I didn't. For some reason, something stopped me. And I just turned around in the dark and I looked at what was in my garage. And 
it was those things, my cars and the motorcycle, but I still wasn't happy. And I think that was the first time that I finally admitted to myself that, yes, I have a good career. I have a decent degree. I make good money, but yet I still don't feel happy. I still don't feel fulfilled. What in the world is going on? And I think a lot of people feel that way, especially if you're in IT, but really in almost any job, I think a lot of people can probably wrap their heads around exactly what I was feeling at that moment. What sort of decisions did you decide to make from there? I know you got married and you and your wife kind of took on the path of trying to become financially independent. From there, I didn't immediately like put everything into place. I knew something was wrong. I knew I couldn't continue down this path, but I didn't know exactly my way out yet. But at least I knew there was a problem. And that was the very first step. So a couple years down the road, I met my wife, well, my soon-to-be wife. We did eventually get married. And at that point, we had a choice to make because she worked also in IT. She's actually a rocket scientist, actual rocket scientist. So I absolutely married up. And she was bringing a pretty good income. We were bringing a pretty good income. Combined by the end of our careers, we were making about $220,000 combined. So that's pretty good, especially living in Tucson, Arizona at that point very low cost of living, that money would go a long way if you were smart with it. So we had all this money coming in now. So we had a choice to make. We could either live like rock stars with the house on the hill and the cars and expensive dinners and jewelry or whatever, or we can save as much as we possibly can, invest as much as we possibly can, and maybe retire in our 30s or 40s and just do whatever we want for the rest of our lives. I was always the spender in this relationship. My wife was the saver. She never wanted to retire early, but she was a saver. So I didn't exactly have an uphill battle trying to convince her that, yeah, this is probably what we should do. I think a lot of people out there might have that struggle. But for me, it really wasn't much of a struggle. She liked what she was doing, but she was willing to entertain better offers. And at the time, we were thinking about traveling the country maybe selling off our houses and buying an Airstream and just setting sail for a while and just kind of see where the tide takes us. And that's ultimately what we ended up doing in 2016 and 2017. We really started to put those pieces into place. We sold my house. I moved in with my wife in her house. Then we eventually sold her house and the Airstream was the only home we had. We lived 100% full-time in that Airstream And we traveled the country everywhere from New York to Washington State, down here to Arizona. And I think the furthest southeast we got was Alabama and everywhere in between. So it was a lot of fun, but things have certainly changed from when I worked my full-time career back in 2013 through 2014. It went from a nine-to-five drag, quite frankly, to really a life where I can do, I can get up when I want and do whatever I want. And that's just so unbelievably freeing. So you went from having all the nice things and working a full-time job. Then at age 35, you became financially independent. What investment vehicles did you and your wife use to get to that point? And what other things did you need to knock out? Did you need to sell any of the cars you had or pay off any debts prior to that? I like to say that I built wealth the old-fashioned way, which means I didn't have a inheritance. There's no lottery. I don't even play the lottery. I didn't have a side business. 
quite frankly, I didn't even have a side hustle. And if you were in the money Twitter space or the side hustle space on Twitter, I mean, that's like multiple sources of income is always what they preach. And I preach that too. But quite frankly, I didn't have all that stuff set up. But what we did do, especially when we combined finances, is we maxed out our 401k. So both me as well as my wife maxed out our 401ks. We maxed out our IRAs. And we also opened up a brokerage account. So imagine this, two relatively high paid people making $220,000 a year by the end of our careers, we're saving about 70%. That's 70% of our combined income in a low cost of living area. That is going to add up so freaking quickly. I think we saved 100% of my salary and lived on about half of my wife's salary. So like I said, the traditional 401ks, the Roth IRAs, we opened up a brokerage account and funneled everything extra that we had into that brokerage account. I sold my Yamaha R1, sold my Corvette. We kept the Cadillac around for a little while, so my wife had a nicer car to drive to work, but we eventually sold that because we were going to pull an Airstream, and you can't pull a 10,000-pound Airstream with a Cadillac CTS, I'm sorry. So we went with a three-quarter ton Dodge diesel as a utility vehicle because we needed that to pull the Airstream. So a lot of downsizing, a lot of minimizing our lifestyle, a lot of saving. We have at one point two years of living expenses in cash saved up. And that's a lot more cash than a lot of people feel comfortable with. But as I like to say about money management and financial independence in general, there's two sides to this. There's the math side, what works on paper, what makes sense mathematically. And then there's the other side, which is the psychological aspect of money. If you haven't read the book, The Psychology of Money, I highly, highly recommend that. That's the other side of this. So while it might not make 100% financial sense on paper, if it makes you feel better at night by having a little bit more cash, that is the right decision for you. And don't let anybody change your mind. If that makes you sleep at night, there's nothing more important than that. And for us, that was absolutely a part of this equation, having a little bit more cash saved up. So if there is a recession, and we know there's going to be one, nobody knows when, but we know there's going to be one, we have that cash buffer. So we're not going to be forced to sell investments and potentially take a loss to fund our lifestyle in the event of, of a market crash or, or a longer term recession. So you max out your 401k and you max out your IRA, both you and your wife, and you also invest in your brokerage account as well. Is that 100% index funds? And why did you decide to make that your investment of choice? I would say it's like 90%. And we are 90% index funds. We are more risky at this point because we are younger and we can afford to take a little bit more risk. I think I firmly believe 90% of people should be 100% index fund investors. It's just that simple. Most of us cannot pick and choose stocks well consistently. And that's certainly the case for me. There's no way I would do that. That's not what I enjoy doing. So for the most part, we are index funds. Now, that's not to say that if you do like picking and choosing stocks, you might take three, four, five percent of your net worth and you know, choose some, some stocks here and there. Just have fun with it if that's what, what you like to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think for the majority of people out there, especially if you're like me, where you just want to build well, 
you're not this math guy. You're not this heavy investor guy. You're not in the finance. You just want to make money over time. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? I think that's really where index funds shine. And I was always a big proponent of the targeted retirement fund and the life strategy funds, which are very low fee offered through Vanguard and Fidelity and some other investment institutions. Yes, you can make more money elsewhere. Absolutely. But if you don't want to think about that, if that's not what brings you joy in life, and that's definitely me, that is a great, those funds are a great way to just get your money in the market, have it automatically diversified, automatically managed for you. And then as you get older towards your retirement date, whatever that happens to look like for you, that investment company, if you have a targeted retirement fund, for example, will slowly start to transition your stock investments over to less risky bonds as you get older, where you have a little bit less flexibility to take on more risk. It's all automatic. You just invest. The investment company does everything. And that kind of automation with investing really works for us because it means that we don't have to think about that stuff. All we have to do is earn money and throw it in there and everything else is taken care of. To me, that's almost like the easy button to investing in the stock market. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. 
NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. We talk a lot about the markets and investing and stock investing, especially in individual stocks on this show. And I think it's really cool to hear someone's story on how they've used their investments to completely change their life. You know, money is important and we talk about it a lot on this show, but it, it isn't everything. And you're living proof of that to be the case. You know, you're not chugging away at a job you don't like anymore. You're doing things you enjoy. You're spending your time exactly how you want to now. That's exactly it. And that was really our entire point of this early retirement lifestyle. It wasn't just that I don't want to work. It was that I want to control my time. I want to control every minute of the day. And one of the most common questions that I get is, Steve, what do you do with your day? Aren't you bored? And I firmly believe that only boring people are bored. I am a very internally motivated person. This really wasn't a challenge for me. My wife and I usually get up between 6 and 6.30 in the morning. So we're relatively early risers. We pet the dogs for a while. Then we sit down and have some coffee or tea. I might log on to Twitter or social media and check out what's going on there. Then we go for a walk with the dogs and then we come back. Basically, you know, we just do whatever we feel like doing. My wife's a huge cooker. She's a huge knitter. She always finds things to do that makes her feel productive. And I do as well. I write a lot online, do a lot, spend a lot of time on social media, all that stuff to give back, to spread the message of financial independence. And that's what really brings me joy. And in the afternoon, man, anything goes. We live out here in the middle of the Arizona desert. We have seven acres. And there's, there always seems to be something to do, some kind of project to do. Yesterday, I was out spreading 10 tons of rock gravel around to make a nice little gravel pad for us. But might spend some time on the tractor, might do... It, really, the sky is the limit. There's always something that I can find that makes me feel productive. And that really comes back to having hobbies. If your job is your hobby, then you should not even think about retiring early. It's very easy to assume that, oh, once I retire, I'll find something to do. I'll be fine. Things will be better. I'll be happy. It's not going to be a problem. Well, guess what? It is for a lot of people. You finally go from that nine to five or nine to six, nine to seven, eight to whatever, your full-time job. And then the next day you have nothing. It's like, what happens then? What are you going to do? And I, I always like to say that there's a bell curve to early retirement. And just picture a bell curve in your mind. Right after you retire, you know, you're, at this, you're at this level of, I don't want to do this. I am unsatisfied. My happiness level is relatively low. That's like your baseline level of happiness going into retirement. And then it finally happens. You quit your job. You're done. Your happiness level immediately starts to rise. It goes way up, way up, way up, right? And if you don't have a hobby, you might spend the next week or two or three just kind of vegging a little bit, catching up on your sleep, watching Netflix or whatever, Disney Plus, and things are going okay. But eventually, and the timing here is going to be different for everybody. It might take a couple of days. It might take a couple of weeks. But eventually, you're going to sit on the couch and you're going to think to yourself, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I feel unhealthy. I feel unproductive. I go to bed at night with no real accomplishments. What the heck is going on? And that's the very top of the bell curve, where your happiness level actually begins to level off and you don't get any happier. 
And the thing is, if you don't fix that, if you don't know how to fix it, if you're not trying new things, your happiness level is going to go right back down the other side of that bell curve and you're going to go right back to where you were before. You might actually find yourself back in the office. Or even worse, I think MarketWatch published something a couple of years ago that actually proved early retirees die younger. That is a really scary thought. And the reason is because too many early retirees retire from something and not to something. If you're only retiring from your job and not to a better life, to something specific, to your hobbies, to your passions, I think you're going to find early retirement, if that's your goal, is going to be a huge, huge struggle for you. So as you were saving very aggressively at your job, when did you know that it was time to make the jump? What did your what did your net worth and portfolio values look like? What did your expenses look like? And how did you know, yes, now's the right time to make the jump? That was a point of contention. In a lot of relationships, I think one person is a little bit more risk tolerant and the other person is more risk averse. In our relationship, as you probably guessed by now, I am way more risk tolerant and my wife is way more risk averse. So we had to come to a meeting of the minds. I was okay retiring at like $500,000 in net worth. And she's like, dude, you're stupid. There's no way we're quitting our jobs with a half million dollars. There's, that's not going to work. I want more like a million or even more than that. I'm like, mm, yeah, I think we could do it before that. Let's set our minds. Let's try it. Maybe we don't need a million. Please don't make me wait that long. So at that point, I was like, okay, why don't we shoot for 40? I want to retire when I'm 40. I don't want to work in my 40s at all. And maybe if we have I don't know, around a million, maybe a little bit less, that could work. But one thing that my wife and I did to really wrap our heads around this and decide what the heck we're going to do here is after dinner, every single night, we would walk our dogs around the neighborhood every single night. And we would talk about our future, talk exactly about what we see our future holding, what, how much money that we think we're going to spend, what we want to be doing. And that kind of reinforcement really helps solidify some of these numbers for us. So by the time that I did call it quits, and this was December 23rd of 2016, best Christmas present ever to myself, by the way, we had $870,000 in net worth. Now, my wife continued to work for another six months before we were both officially retired. So she had another six months of income. Wasn't a world of difference, but I mean, it was something. So we had about $870,000 and we were spending at the time... I don't know, I'd say between 30 and 40 grand a year. So we were really living minimally. And remember what I said before, we were pulling in 220 Gs a year and we were spending 30 or 40. So if you do the math there, that's like $180,000, $170,000 that we were saving. There's taxes. So those aren't exact numbers. Those were pre-tax numbers. So it wasn't exactly that, but you get the idea. We were saving a lot of money and that adds up really, really quickly. And when you're in our situation where you're heavily invested in the stock market, especially index funds, your lifestyle revolves around how the market's doing. If it's doing great, you're doing great. You might be spending a little bit more than you anticipated. If the market's not doing so well, then guess what? You're going to have to cut back. And that's just part of our early retirement philosophy, our lifestyle. We've accepted that. 
So when we first retired, everything was fine. We spent for the next couple of years traveling around in our Airstream, we spent thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. And then COVID hit and everything took a crash. It was a very short-lived, luckily, but man, we weren't panicked at all by any stretch of the imagination because like I said, I am a very risk-tolerant person. But I think in April of 2020, we were down over $200,000. Our net worth just down 200 grand in almost a month. And at that point, people were reaching out to me, people I didn't even know, but also like friends and family asking me if I'm going to get out of the market. I think one or two people on Twitter DM'd me and why they care, I have no idea, but they begged me to get out of the market because everything's going to crash. Everything's going down. Boy, I'm glad I didn't do that. Because when you try to time the market, you might be able to time it here and there, but you're not going to be able to consistently time the market. My response was basically, I appreciate your concern, but I didn't ask you for financial advice. I'm not getting out of the market because it crashed because of COVID. It wasn't a long-term recession. There was a very tangible reason why the market went down. It was COVID. And as markets tend to do, they normalize. Over time, they go back to what they do best, and that's grow. So if I had sold at that point, we would have been selling all of our stocks at a loss. But within about a year and a half of that point, so mid this year, we had regained 100% plus about $150,000 in net worth because I stayed invested. And that is the magic of the stock market. Imagine retiring when you're 35 with about $870,000. And then when you're 40, you look at your net worth and you're at like 1.2, 1 1.3. It's like, what? I never set foot in an office once and I made $500,000 just because I'm invested in the market? Yes. Granted, this is a bull market. It's not going to be this way forever. If you choose to retire at a bad time, you might lose money instead of gain money. There's always going to be the risk. And I'm not naive enough to believe that this is just going to work the same way for everybody. But over the long term, man, the market really does what it does best. And that's grow if you have a long term mindset. The market is a very powerful wealth building machine. And you knew that if you had to go back to work for whatever reason, you know, if your portfolio went down too much and you were unable to withdraw what you needed to or you were running short on cash, you knew you had those marketable skills that if you absolutely had to, you could go back to work. That was one of the biggest criticisms of my early retirement plans from the general public. When I was going through this, I had a blog. It was called thinksaveretire.com. I have since sold that, so I'm no longer affiliated with it. But I wrote a lot of articles about how I'm achieving FI and what happens if things go south. And a lot of people were saying, you know, Steve, you might not want to do this because you're not going to get your job back, buddy. It was almost as if they were hoping something was going to go wrong and I was going to have to eat my words or something. I don't know. Kind of seemed that way. But in my opinion, the market loves people with marketable skills. So here's the deal. Yes, I may not be able to get the exact same job back, 
have the exact same salary with the exact same responsibilities. Yes, you might be right. But then again, that's what I spent all of these years trying to avoid, trying to get away from. I don't want that same job back. But if you have a marketable skill, and this is especially true in IT, but regardless of what you do, if you have a marketable skill, if you have something of value in the market, there's always going to be a job for you, period. I have turned down more job opportunities since I retired than I did back when I was working. So if I wanted to be working right now, making $100,000, a year, I absolutely could. But quite frankly, that's the last thing I wanted to do. So the moral of this story is, yeah, you're probably not going to get your exact same job back, but I think it's very healthy to have hobbies that kind of surround what you did, what your strengths are before you retired. So if things do hit the fan and you do have to go back to work several years down the road, you have something, you know, you have something to show. You keep your skin in the game a little bit. You have, you're still doing something that revolved around what you did when you worked a full-time job. So I was in IT. I do some consulting work online that's very technical based. I write some code. I do this and that. So it's not a full-time job. It's like three or four hours a week sometimes. It's not a lot, but it's enough to really keep me thinking like that. Keep me in the IT game. So if things do go badly, I can go back. I can get some kind of job doing what I did before even though it may not be the exact same job that I retired from. And quite frankly, that I don't want again. Now you mentioned you spend around three to 4,000 a month and some people might be shaking their head like, how are they spending this little? Probably depends on the listener and their own lifestyle, but you've done some creative things to figure out ways to lower your expenses and just really keep them under control. And especially what impressed me was the land purchase you were able to make. So tell us a little bit about the property you purchased and some of the big expenses you were able to limit when comparing to your spending habits earlier on in your life. This is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I think living in a high cost of living area is highly overrated. There's going to be some exceptions to that. I totally get that. But for us, especially living in a low cost of living area has made a world of difference. I like to call our house that we live in now, our off-grid recession-proof home. And what I mean by that is we have no hookups to the grid, to the utilities whatsoever. We have solar panels on our property. We have a well for water on our property. We have septic on our property. We do pay for propane that we have to have trucked in and just fill our huge propane tank. But other than that, we have no connection whatsoever, which means we are so self-sustained out here that we can live almost as cheaply as we want. This year has been stupid. We probably spent sixty or $70,000 this year, but only because the market's been doing so well. And this is the time where you can spend a lot of money. But if the mar- or when the market does go back down, when there is a recession, I think we've built a lifestyle here out in the Arizona desert with our little thousand square foot house with the solar panels that we can really cut back. I mean, our property taxes are about a hundred bucks a month. That's it. 
And that is, I mean, when you're only spending a couple hundred dollars on everything except for health insurance, I mean, man, you can live almost as cheaply as you want. And for our health insurance, we pay about 500 a month, I want to say. We found a plan on the uh, healthcare exchange, the marketplace, which was actually cheaper than we were paying with Liberty Health Share, by the way, which is what we had when we were traveling the country. But we bailed from that, went with a traditional health plan, pay about 500 bucks a month. So that's by far our biggest expense. No mortgage, no hookups, no utility hookups. We provide as much as we possibly can in our little homestead here. And it's worked out so, so well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. What have you found to be the pros and cons of early retirement? I'm sure the pros include just 
so much time on your hands that you can just really do whatever you want. But I'm curious if you have any cons that you'd like to share that you found. Like you said, the pro is having as much time as you want to do whatever you want. But that's also the con. That's the exact same thing as the con, depending on who you are. If you're a very internally motivated person like me and you just find things to do, you can be productive by pursuing your passions. It's great. You don't have to answer to anybody. You don't have to build things that have to make money. Even though you could, you don't have to. The money side is, is taken care of. You no longer have that draw. But that's also the con. The con is you have to fill your time with something. You no longer have that nine to five job, that full-time work that consumes the majority of your time, quite frankly, the majority of your time. So you don't really have to think about filling your days except for Saturday and Sunday. But it's easy when you have a full-time job, right? Because everything just kind of gets pushed off. Oh, we'll do that over the weekend. We'll do that on Saturday. And so you just naturally build your schedule. You build your time for the weekends when you can't really do much during the week. But when you can do anything you want during the week, that's going to be a challenge for a lot of people if you don't have hobbies and passions and things to pursue. And I think another con is, again, this is going to depend on who you are, but a lot of people derive a lot of social, I guess, benefits from working. Your coworkers, you might go out to happy hours and do things with them. So that's like your social outlet in some cases. For me, it wasn't necessarily that way. They were more like, we may have done happy hours here and there, but it really, really wasn't a big thing. But when you no longer have coworkers, depending on where you live, you're just kind of home with your spouse. And okay, if you don't have something to do, that might actually be a challenge. And this actually leads into my third con. It seems like I have more cons than pros here. <laughs> but if you have a relationship problem, or quite frankly, any problem, early retirement will very likely make it worse. And the reason is because you have more time to stew on that problem, especially if it's a relationship problem. Spending more time around your spouse, if there's something going on there, might not help. In fact, it might make it worse. So I think for a lot of people, if you fall into that boat or you think that that might be a problem, that's going to be something that you probably need to at least start working towards before you call it quits. You don't have to have it all figured out, obviously. No one has things all figured out. But if you think that early retirement is just going to make things better, just magically makes things better, that you're just going to turn into this happy person overnight, that's not the way this works. If you're an unhappy, negative person before you retire, you're probably going to be a negative, unhappy person after you retire because there's going to be things that you find and you're just going to make them negative. But if you're a happy person before, guess what? You're absolutely going to be happy. The goal is happier after you retire. So I think that was like three cons and only one pro. But that one pro is so huge. And I can really distill that down into one word. It's freedom. And freedom encompasses everything, absolutely everything. The freedom to not worry about money. The freedom to do whatever you want with your time the freedom to design your life however you want, the freedom to get up whenever you want, the freedom to do whatever you want. And that is, I mean, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing better than being able to control your life almost 100% of the time. I think a good segue for that is to pivot to something that is discussed on Twitter quite often. And that's the follow your passion versus earn more money debate. 
some would argue that you should follow your passion and do what you love in life. And others would argue that you should focus on your strengths to earn more money and not necessarily do what you love. Where do you fall on this? I really hate the advice, follow your passion. It's going to work for somebody. Yes, it is. But here's the problem. Our passions don't tend to pay the bills. I'll say it that way. And the reason is because most people's passions aren't like the hard sciences, the math, the problems. It's more, they're more creative. They're more higher level. They're more kind of up in the clouds where you can kind of do your own thing, make your own decisions. And I mean, if you can combine your passion and your strength, which is just what you're naturally good at, I think you have the best of both worlds there. But I don't think just the blanket follow your passion advice is very good, quite frankly. My passion is photography. I've always loved photography. When I was in high school, I worked at Ritz Camera, Photoshop. I've always had that creative outlet that I wanted to pursue. But to be honest, if somebody told me to follow my passion and I did, I can guarantee you I would not be early retired right now because photography just doesn't pay as much as my skill did, which is IT. And a lot of people's strengths are natural strengths, what they're good at, those things will tend to pay more money than your passions, whether it's computer science or accounting or really anything. What, what you're good at is going to pay the bills. What you're passionate about should be what you do on the side where you don't have to worry about money. It's just like a release. It's like, this is what I love doing. And this is what I want to do without having to worry about making a full-time income. I think the challenge that a lot of people face when they pursue their passion is their passion is no longer their passion when you have to make it a full-time job, when you have to earn a full-time. I can't really say whether photography would still be my passion if I had pursued it. I don't know, but I can guarantee you I would not be early retired uh, right now. And I probably wouldn't be doing as much with my camera as I am right now, because that's something that I do on the side. It's not something I do all the time. I don't have to make a single dollar from it. And that's, and that's really freeing for me. Yeah. I think a lot of people that end up trying to follow their passion and especially go to like college or get their undergrad degree in that field, they'll find that college actually ended up costing them a lot more than they thought. And they have all this debt. And then they're essentially trapped where they're at this job in that field. And they're like, you know, being in this financial position is not where I want to be. And I think going into a field that focuses on your strengths and has those marketable skills to earn more money. And I just think that it's just a much smarter and safer path, but I can see it not being so black and white. And it really depends on the individual. It absolutely does. And part of the problem here is when we go to college, and I still in general like the idea of college, I'm not one of these anti-college people, but the problem here is we're, we're kind of deciding our career path, our life almost, when we're 18 or 19, we pick our major, we get a degree, and then we follow that path. I mean, who the hell knows whether we're going to like that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road. I mean, we're still, quite frankly, we're still kids when we enter college. And we change so much during that part of our life that our passions may no longer be our passions, whether we pursue them or not. But I think that for most of us, our strengths are always our strengths. 
It's things that we're just naturally good at. Our passions are things that we like to do, but our passions go in and out of vogue. We may try different things. We like this now, but we might choose something else later. Those things kind of switch up a little bit more often, I think. And we pigeonhole ourselves almost. If we choose to get a degree or pursue our passions full time, we pigeon ourselves into or pigeonhole ourselves into choosing that one career path that we happen to like at the time. And we don't give ourselves a lot of flexibility to move on after that without at least a lot of work or maybe going back to school and getting yet another degree. Whereas our strength, I mean, that's it. Our strengths are our strengths. Yes, we can develop new strengths if we work hard enough at them. But I think those things, our strengths are a little bit easier to follow from a long-term perspective, a little bit easier to get a marketable degree that we're going to be able to pay off sooner than if we were to get a degree in our passions. And it's going to be something that I think we're going to just flat make more money with. And that will set us up for you know, saving more, investing more, achieving financial independence. Or if your goal is early retirement, I think following a career of your strengths is going to set you up to achieve that goal much, much sooner. So after hearing your story, some people in the audience may want to learn more about the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early, which I'm sure you know all about. What resources would you recommend for them to learn more? That's a more difficult question to answer than I anticipated, I think, because there's a lot of FIRE blogs out there, a lot of people writing about their journey. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But you're also, quite frankly, going to get a lot of bad advice a lot of advice that's just not right for you. It might be right for them. It might work for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be right for you. There's a lot. I mean, if you just Google fire blogs, you're going to have a slew, a ton of different resources out there. But the problem is they're not always, they're not always going to be good resources. So I like to encourage people to read more books than to follow blogs at this point. A few books that I really love is The Millionaire Next Door by the late Dr. Tom Stanley. That's probably my all-time favorite book. It's not about fire specifically, but it's about building wealth. And you'll learn some things about millionaires. Oh my gosh, that will blow your mind. For example, I think a Ramsey study found that three quarters of millennials think that the majority of millionaires just inherited their wealth. It was just dumb luck. It was pure chance. They were born into the right family. They did nothing to earn that million dollars. But in the book, The Millionaire Next Door, and quite frankly, so many studies prove that the vast majority of millionaires don't inherit their wealth. They actually earn their wealth by building businesses and providing value for other people. So that book was, as I was going through this process, The Millionaire Next Door was the most eye opening book that I've ever read, bar none. I think another good one is The Psychology of Money. That really teaches you, like I said before, about the mindset behind making financial decisions where it might not work as well on paper, but if it makes you sleep at night, it's the right decision for you. That book is all about that side of things. Another one that a lot of people like is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, I think the book is good. I do not like the author in any way, shape, or form. But the book resonates with a lot of people. It follows the journey of a rich dad and also a poor dad and the the decisions they both made. And that can certainly help you put the pieces into place in your journey. Just gives you a variety of 
different sources to read and, and consider. I'd like to add one more book recommendation that I think many listeners would find valuable, and that is The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. We actually interviewed J.L. on the Millennial Investing Podcast, and he advocates an approach very similar to what Steve did to achieve financial independence, which is continually investing in low-cost index funds. I think that's by far the easiest way to build wealth. Unless you're a deep finance person, you like numbers, you like math, you like talking in yields and price to earnings rates. I mean, if, if that's your thing, that's great. I mean, do it. That, that's all good. But it's not his way. And it's definitely not my way. That's not what makes me happy. Building wealth makes me happy. Being knee deep in finances, that's just flat boring to me. Personal finance is personal for a reason. And each individual has to choose what strategy works best for them. And it's important just to learn what strategies actually exist. And this is why I wanted to bring you on the show, Steve, just to help some people realize what is actually possible for them. I believe that early retirement is possible for many people. And Steve, you're living proof of that. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you? I spend a lot of time on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Steve on Speed. The on speed part was back when I drove my Corvette and my Yamaha R1 race bike. So that's the context that I meant on speed at the time. So don't get any weird ideas. I also have a blog at steveadcock.us. I publish occasionally there, but if you want to contact me, that's a good place to find me as well. I love it. Steve, thank you so much for coming onto the show. You are very welcome. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.